just one brief word about fellowship time. Um, as many of you know, we have been having fellowship after church out here on the lawn. That's been a joy as well as a good testimony to our neighborhood of the fact that God is doing things here at the church. And so I want to encourage you to plan to stick around after the service and enjoy a time of fellowship. And next Sunday is our last time that we'll be doing this outdoor fellowship for a while. And that is the day that we are asking anyone whose last name starts with the letter Q through the letter Z to bring some baked goods to share. And I would encourage you to um, just, let's face it, this is a competition. And so, um, no. <laughs> but I would encourage you to uh, make sure that you bring something that would be wonderful to share. We eat what you bring, but that's just a, a fun time for us to fellowship, get to know each other, and really encourage one another in the Lord. And then after that, the following week, October 3rd, is going to be our next Providential Fellowship. For those who are not aware of what this is, this is when we ask everybody in the church, whether you are here for the first time or you've been here many times, we are asking that you would, if you're available, commit to spending about three hours at a home that afternoon to where you can get to know other people. And so we are asking for a couple of things. This Tuesday, you will be receiving an email that will ask you, A, are you interested in being a host home? If you're a member of the church, what that looks like is you opening your doors, having your house ready for people to come in, and plan for them to be there for at least about three hours, where they are going to bring food to your house, and you will have food there as well that you can enjoy their fellowship. And if you're not able to open your doors this time to host, we're asking people to be able to go. And if you're interested in going to a home for Providential Fellowship, please let us know that as well, because what we're going to do is put all the names into a bowl. We are going to draw names, and we're letting the Lord determine exactly where you will be that Sunday afternoon and exactly who you will be sharing a table with. So I encourage you, if you are able to join us for that, please respond to the email. If you are not currently on our email list but would like to be, uh, Gideon, can you just stand for a moment? Make sure that you see Gideon on. He'll make sure that you are now receiving all of the emails uh, from a regular basis from our church. And lastly, before we jump into the Word, this week, Lord willing, uh, our family will be moving to the parsonage. It is not quite done, but we're going to go ahead and move in. It's easier to work there when we don't have to leave kids behind and figure out who's going to be where for all of those things. So we'll just be living in the house, finishing up all the work that needs to be done. But if you would like to help us with that move, we're going to be doing that on Tuesday. And most of the big stuff we're going to begin in the evening, but we're going to be doing things all day long. So if you'd like to help out with the truck loading stuff, we're going to start that at about 4.30 p.m. If you would like to help with other things during the day, that's going to happen probably starting around 9 o'clock in the morning. Or if you have no ability to uh, serve that day, that is totally fine as well. Please pray for us. We'll probably need it. But thank you so much for all of those who have already assisted us, and we're excited to be able to now move over to a new place where we can live and use that home for ministry. So with all of that being said, I would ask at this time that you please open your Bibles to the book of First Timothy. New things often bring a lot of joy. A lot of people like new things. They like, I don't know how many of you guys would say so, but many people like new car smell. How many of you would say that you like that? Uh, I've never owned like a brand new car, so maybe that's not, <laughs> you like it better if you've ever owned one off the lot. But uh, I prefer the smell of new books. If you've ever gone to a bookstore, uh, I like used books, but they don't have the same smell that a new book has. You know, when you break it open, it's probably bad for you. It's probably some kind of toxic glue, but it smells good. Um, 
we are now embarking on a new adventure. We are going to be going through the book of 1 Timothy together. And I'm really excited because this is something that is, for me, uh, an exciting opportunity as this is one of those books that focuses predominantly on what we are called to do here at the church. And I'm excited because I'm, I'm desirous to have the church shaped and modeled exactly after what the Scripture teaches us to do. But before we even begin reading it, it would probably be helpful to preface this epistle with a couple of very simple expectations and explanations before we move forward. First of all, you're probably going to immediately feel the impact of moving from a summer in the Old Testament with Isaiah and with the Psalms and now moving into the New Testament. In those other books that we were studying in the Old Testament, we see Jesus there. He is in every chapter. He is the point of every single verse. The entire Bible is about him. However, in the Old Testament, Jesus is displayed in types and in shadows. And now, in the New Testament, we see that he has come in the flesh. And as many people have previously stated, in the Old Testament, Jesus is concealed, but in the New Testament, he is revealed. And so you're going to be seeing much more clearly the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. And for this reason, you are going to find you can't go a single paragraph without explicit references to the gospel. Every letter collected in the New Testament is positively saturated with clear and illuminating declarations about the Son of God. So I am really excited to preach once again from a book that is written on this side of the cross. Secondly, there's going to be a different pacing than you've probably become accustomed to over the summer. Back in April, uh, when I first became the pastor here, I started a series called The Mission the mission and the message. And in that series, we did what I considered to be a flyover of the whole Bible. We went all the way up. It's like not even just being in a plane. It was like John Glenn in the Friendship 7 orbiting the globe. We went through the entire concept of Scripture rapidly, everything from Genesis to Revelation. What is the meta narrative? What is the whole story all about? And then what we determined to do was to come back down a little lower. We landed and began exploring the Bible at ground level this summer, walking through one chapter a week. But what I'm going to ask you to do with me for the next eight months is to take your magnifying glass or maybe even a microscope out as we zoom in further to explore the fascinating intricacies of what God has to teach us from this incredible little letter. And finally, I want to just give a heads up that we're going to take a slightly unusual approach as we work our way through this book. Normally, when I preach through a book of the Bible, what we do is we start at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and we just slowly, methodically, week after week, verse after verse, make our way to the end of the book. And that's good. I steal this from Ed Moore. He always says, and I have since always said, that it's not the goal to get through the book, but for the book to get through to us. Well, this time, we are going to take a unique approach because we are at a unique juncture in the life of this local body. At this moment, in this church, we have zero deacons and we have one elder, which is me. And I would say that's not good. In fact, I would go to say that's deeply unhealthy for a church to operate in that way for a long period of time, which is why we have every intention of nominating and affirming deacons this fall and nominating and affirming elders in the spring. That is the goal. However, in order to do that, we need to know what those things are according to Scripture and base everything that we are doing off of what the Word tells us. Thankfully, 
1 Timothy contains the most clear and helpful instruction in all of Scripture concerning the roles and requirements and responsibilities of deacons and elders. And it's my deep desire to soak in those sections for a while, to absorb them as much as possible, so that every member of Gateway Church will have a thorough biblical understanding of what deacons and elders are to look like. Now, the problem is, that section about deacons, which we will be voting on in November, does not show up until the middle of chapter 3. And we're not going to make it that far in time for our business meeting to vote on them in November. So our approach to this book is going to be to hear three sermons at the outset that will serve as an introduction to us for the book, to help us understand the direction that Paul is going and the purposes he sets forth. Then what we're going to do is jump ahead We're going to take this one section out about deacons, and we're going to move it forward. We're going to study that for a few weeks, and then we're going to come right back to chapter 1 and make our way through very carefully and methodically moving forward. So, with all of those preliminary expectations set, let's now dive into this new journey together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1, reads this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by command of God our Savior, And of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, today as we come now to this text, we ask that you would help us, that you would give us wisdom and clarity. Lord, I pray for the people who have read the Scripture cover to cover many times, that these things that we say today would be fresh and renewing to them. I pray that they would not come with an attitude that they know, but they are ready to hear. And God, I pray for those who have never been uh, confronted with these words, that have never heard of Paul or Timothy. I pray that this would be a time where they would be able to learn and grow. I pray for intellectual knowledge to be transferred from your word to our minds. But God, I pray much more than that, that you would cause radical transformation of the heart because of what we see in your word this morning. I pray that our church would operate in a more godly way every day because of what we are being confronted with here in 1 Timothy. I pray that it would shape us, that it would help us, that it would direct our path forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are in the habit of writing letters or more realistically in these days, emails, then you probably use the common modern formatting that we are all very accustomed to. You start by addressing the recipient, dear so-and-so, and then at the bottom of the letter you make some kind of a statement of endearment, such as sincerely yours or in Christ, or maybe simply love, and then you put a comma and then you put your own name, and maybe if you're at a job you put your title as well. I honestly much prefer the ancient style of formatting, which makes a lot more sense to me, As you see in this letter and every other letter written by Paul, the proper composition of a letter would begin with self-identification. Who does this letter come from? Paul begins with his own name and his own position or title. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And then he explains to whom the letter is written, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, followed by a statement of endearment grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you ever write to me, I would be overjoyed if you adopt this style guide of Paul and you use the New Testament formatting. But let's not move along too quickly here. Let's dig down into what is being said in these introductory words of Paul. 
the very first word is simply his own name, Paul. This is a Latin name that was used for him. The word literally just means little man. But this belonged to one of the most dominant figures in the entire New Testament. Paul, before coming to Christ, was an up-and-coming philosopher of religion. He was training under one of the most respected and high intellectuals of the day named Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He was of Jewish birth, but he was also one of the rare Hebrews that also had a citizenship with Rome. He was known as his Hebrew name, Saul of Tarsus, and his Roman name was Paul. He did not change his name over time. He had both of these names from birth, but just like many people would do, he would use the name Saul or his Hebrew name, Hebrew having a lot of gutturals and a lot of sounds that most people have a difficulty saying. Oftentimes, Hebrew folks would use a different name as they were using in Gentile circles. And by the time of the writing of this letter, Paul had already dedicated himself to a life of ministering with the Gentiles to the extent that even when he is speaking of himself with his closest friend, Timothy, he is not using his name that would have been most common as a child, Saul, but instead he is referring to himself with his Gentile name, Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, we see a seven-part resume of Paul's life prior to Christ. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This was not only to say, look, hey, from the time I was eight days old, I was already better at following the law than you guys were. But it's also to say, look, my parents were God-honoring people. They followed the law. I come from good stock. Paul is claiming a spiritual pedigree. And then secondly, he says highlighted by the fact that he is of the people of Israel. He is not a Samaritan. He is not a Gentile. He is not from Ethiopia. He is definitely not from Japan. This guy was biologically descended from Father Abraham himself. But not only that, we also see that he was, quote, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the sweetheart tribe. If you remember back to Jacob and his 12 sons, which one did he love the most? Well, it could be argued that it was Joseph, but after Joseph was taken away into Egypt, the one that he loved the most and cared for the most and protected the most was certainly Benjamin, the favorite son of Jacob, the last son of Rachel. And if you remember, the very first king of Israel, King Saul, notice that's also where Paul gets his Hebrew name, Saul. Being that there were a very limited number of Benjaminites left, it is highly likely that Paul, from his birth, had a genealogy that ran all the way back to the very first king of Israel, which is why he would have been given a name that would usually only transfer through the family line. He's probably a descendant of that King Saul that was tormenting David so many years. Either way, he was granted a royal name. Fourthly, he claims that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, this means that everything that was expected of a Jewish person, both according to the law and according to the culture, he was in full alignment. All of the legal expectations, all of the cultural expectations, he not only met them, but surpassed them. And he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were by far the strictest and most literal readers of the Bible. Fasting and tithing and long prayers and scripture memorization, these were all cornerstones of his upbringing and his daily life. 
The Pharisees looked really good on the outside, so much so that when Jesus is preaching in Matthew chapter 7, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 23, Jesus says that they are like whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but on the inside, they are full of dead man's bones. And he continues and says that he was, as to the church, or as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We have a lot of writing from the first century, from the rabbis, from the Sanhedrin of that day. We actually have writings that are uh, named for Gamaliel, his teacher. Is it really from him? There's debate. But there are many uh, documents that we have that are well-preserved from this era speaking about what is most valuable in the life of a Hebrew person and what they would declare. And trust me, they did not get along about almost anything, especially Pharisees and Sadducees. They rejected almost everything the other party said. Think like Republican, Democrat. If you say it, I reject it. And here, they agree on one thing, and that is that the number one virtue that a Jewish person could have is the virtue of zeal for God. And Paul says, look how zealous I was. I was willing to take kids away from their parents. I was willing to put people in jail. I was willing to kill people for this. I have zeal because I thought that the encroachment of the church was a rejection and a destruction of Judaism. He was so zealous that the first time we find him in the scriptures, he is standing there holding people's coats as they throw rocks at Stephen and kill him the first martyr in the church. Now, if you were reading a book, this is how they would normally introduce the biggest villain. He's lurking in the background, and you see him have this evil snarl as something wicked takes place directly in front of him, and you realize this person is rotten to the core, and you know that guy is going to become a huge problem, and he did. For years, he was the greatest villain of the church, persecuting and destroying anyone who would claim the name of Jesus Christ. But before we hear what changed, consider what I think is the most extreme statement of the seven on the resume that he gives. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Have you ever run a red light? <laughs> righteousness under the law, are you blameless? He says, as to righteousness under the law, not that I was perfect. If you say that he was perfect, that means he never sinned. He never claims that of himself. But what he does say is, as to righteousness under the law, there is not a single person who could point out an area of my life where I am out of step with what is expected or written in the Old Covenant. He knew the law. He obeyed the law. He was committed to the law to such an extent that he says, I was blameless. But Paul continues in Philippians chapter 3 to say that all of those things he just mentioned, he finds them to be worthless. He says they have no value to save his soul. He says that he counts them all as not just nothing, but as lost. They are of negative value to him compared to the value of knowing Christ. But how did that transition happen? One day when Paul was making his way from Jerusalem to Damascus. Damascus, the oldest continually inhabited city in the entire world. He was making his way there to persecute the Christian community that was forming in that city. On that road, Jesus appeared to him and knocked him to the ground and spoke to him. And he said, Paul, or Saul, rather, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And his response was, who are you? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, and every time you've persecuted one of those, you have been persecuting me. 
what we must understand here is that there was a radical transformation. He thought he was doing the will of God, and he realized in that moment everything he had been doing was the opposite of what he should have been doing. There was a radical transformation that took place. God blinded him in that moment, sent him into the city where he told another person to come and bring the gospel to him. Ananias came, healed his eyes. I believe that he was saved in that time. He was baptized, and then over the course of time, he became one of the greatest missionaries and church planters in church history. And the Lord gave Paul the official role of apostle. Now, just to be clear, there are no apostles anymore. There are none today. Paul refers to himself as the last apostle and one born out of season. Notice the wording in verse 1. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. It wasn't something you graduate to. You become a Christian and then become a church member and then a deacon and an elder and then an apostle if you can reach that. No, that's not how that works. Paul didn't set this calling on himself. He didn't pass a test to get it. He was commanded by God to be an apostle. The word apostle simply means a sent one, somebody who has been sent by God himself. What we see happening in the book of Acts, chapter 13, we see that God sets apart two men, Paul and Barnabas, to go and become church planters and missionaries to go across the known world and preach the gospel where it has not been named. And that first missionary journey was primarily in Asia Minor and the homeland of Barnabas, the land of Cyprus. But on Paul's second missionary journey, we see that he makes a return to some of the cities where they had stopped in the first missionary journey, including the towns of Derby and Lystra. And when he arrived there, he was grateful to find that there was a growing body of believers that remained. And there was one among them that stood out for the work of the ministry. Hear these words from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, in this very short introduction, it actually reveals a great deal about Timothy. In those days, a young man would be expected to join his father as an apprentice. Now, what do you do? What is your job? In those days, if you told me your job, I would also know the job of your father and your grandfather and so on and so forth. And there is very rarely a time when that pattern was broken. The only times that did not take place was either due to the poverty of the father or the absence of the father or a broken relationship with the father. Now, we can't be sure of which case Timothy fell into, but because of some of the grammar that is used when referencing how the Jews perceived his father as being a Greek... Most scholars tend to agree it seems that his father was likely still alive and that he was still present because other people knew him. Many have gone so far as to suggest that Timothy's mother may have fallen into the category of someone whose husband had deserted them upon becoming a Christian. We read about that, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We learn more about Timothy's spiritual upbringing in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 where it says, I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Now, we also learn from Acts 16 that Timothy trusted Paul so much that he was willing to allow him to perform adult circumcision, which I imagine that some people would describe as a fate worse than death. 
And as this was not, you have to understand, this is not for a salvific purpose. Remember that Paul had already written a letter to the churches in Galatia. Galatia is not a town or a city. Galatia is a region containing multiple churches, including Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, where Timothy is from. That letter would have gone to him, and the predominant theme of that entire letter is ignore those people who are telling you you must be circumcised. In that book, he says, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. It's all about knowing Christ. So this is not for a salvific purpose. So when he does this, he is doing something saying, there is no spiritual value for you in this except one thing. The goal is that you will not become a stumbling block for the conscience of the people we are trying to reach as we evangelize. This person was willing to go through an elective surgery in the days where there was no numbing agent like we have today in order to better spread the gospel. This young man was a committed, dedicated believer who loved Jesus Christ even above, in some ways, his own body. The humble obedience and spiritual dedication marked the entirety of his ministry. We see this in him over and over and over. And that's why we find him listed by name in 12 of the books of the New Testament. As a young man, Timothy traveled with Paul from place to place, serving in whatever way he could. We don't know exactly what he was doing initially, but if you've ever been on a mission trip, you know that there's just a lot of little things that have to get done. Somebody's got to do the little stuff. In their case, he was probably the one starting the fires getting the water from the well, packing the bags, loading them onto the mule. Whatever they were doing, he was doing the grunt work. And he continued to do that faithfully and without grumbling and without departing from Paul. And during this time, he was watching and imitating Paul as Paul imitated Christ. And as Timothy grew, we find Paul sending him out on these short-term mission trips to serve in other congregations and probably serving as a mailman for Paul's letters as well. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, we read, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Notice he says a couple of important things in this verse. First of all, I sent him to you. He was taking this young man who was so helpful and beneficial in his ministry and now sending him off letting him do things on his own. And not only that, we see that he is doing things exactly as Paul perceives that he himself would do them. He says, he will teach you as I teach them everywhere in every church, as being the key word, meaning in the same exact way that I do things. We see also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. The Thessalonian church was being taught by Timothy. And look at the title. Look at the way his job is described here. He calls Timothy God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Oh, what a joy it would be to have that kind of a title, would it not? And we also find Paul using Timothy as an example of Christ's likeness in the book of Philippians and in chapter 2. In that chapter... Paul teaches them, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. And then he gives them the example of Jesus Christ, the most humble person ever, who went from the highest of heavens and became the lowest of men and even took on the, the role of a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
But then in order to show the people there, look, he is your example, but I want you to know this is also something that we as Christians can do and should do, and he gives him two examples, one Epaphroditus and one Timothy, and says, look at these guys and also imitate them. He uses Timothy as an example to the church, and he even says in verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy was so close to the ministry of Paul that he is also listed as a co-author or a sender of the book of 2 Corinthians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, the book of First and Second Thessalonians, and the book of Philemon. He was intricately connected to the ministry of Paul so much that when Paul signs those letters, he includes not only the name Paul, but also says these letters are from Timothy as well. Eventually, we see that Timothy was sent to Ephesus to care for the church of God. And I think it's really clear if you study the New Testament that Ephesus was probably the church that had the most special place in Paul's heart. It's the place where he stayed the longest of all of his missionary stops. There were places that he stayed longer, but that's because he was in jail and had no ability to go anywhere. But when he had the choice, the place where he spent the most time was in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, when Paul was making his way toward his final destination in Rome, we find Paul making a stop and having a conversation with the elders of the church of Ephesus one final time. And there is this beautiful and heartfelt plea from Paul to that church to continue on in the Lord Jesus Christ without wavering. And I say it is without comparison the longest and most personal speech ever given to a group of elders in the Bible. And at the end of that conversation, we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 37 through 38, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. He has told them he knows he's going to Rome. He knows he's going to die. And as he is leaving them, there is deep sorrow and deep emotion. But if you want a really great study this week, I encourage you, just go to Acts chapter 20 and read his words to them. Read the entire chapter of what he says to these men as he's encouraging them to lead that church faithfully even in his absence. But what happens after he leaves? Paul goes away from this church that he loves and then he sends them the person that would have been most helpful to himself when he is imprisoned in Rome. He sends Timothy to take over the church in Ephesus. And I think that's an incredible thing that Paul would give of himself in that way and say, Timothy, that church that I love, I want you to go care for them in Ephesus. Uh, This letter was sent to Timothy, Paul's true son in the faith. And not long after Timothy took the lead pastor role, Paul writes him this letter, and he writes it in perhaps the most unique style of all of Paul's letters. If you're an avid Bible reader, you will know that the letters of Paul have a very predictable outline. It's usually... The first couple of chapters are all the doctrine, all the theology, and then there's a very clear transition to where it turns to now the practical application. So, for example, Romans is one of the easy ones. In chapters 1 through 11, zero commands. It never tells you to do anything at all. It just tells you what is true. Then in chapter 12, it says, therefore, 
and then it turns the corner and everything becomes, now that we know this and trust this and believe this, how do we live this out in our lives? And that's why as you're going through Romans chapter 12, it's like one after another after another, dozens of commands in just a few verses. Well, almost all of the letters are Paul, of Paul are that way, but here it's a little different when we arrive at the book of 1 Timothy. Instead, in this book, what he generally does is he will present a little bit of a theological argument, and then he'll turn to an encouragement, and then he'll turn to some kind of a, an exaltation of God himself. And this book is interspersed with these short snippets of doctrine and then flourishes of encouragement and then majestic expressions of doxological worship back to back to back. It's written that way in part because this is one of the most personal letters that Paul has ever written. Whereas most of Paul's epistles are written to an entire congregation, there are a few of them that are written directly to individual people. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, written to the person Timothy. Titus is written to Titus. And then Philemon is written just to Philemon. However, there's something really interesting that we find in the words of this book. So before you become a little nervous about reading somebody else's mail, you should know that it's clear that Paul expected the entire congregation to read these words. How do we know that? We know that because in the end of this letter, especially chapters 5 and 6, we're going to find various times where he addresses the church as you, and we know he's addressing the church because the word is plural. He will make a command and say, now all of you do this. So even though this is a very personal letter written to Timothy, there are occasions where we see it was clearly intended to be read publicly, as Paul's letters often were, when they were taken to the various churches. And as we go through this, I want to encourage you to think of this letter in that way, something that would have been read from a pulpit to a congregation, and think a bit about it when he's calling out people by name. Those people probably were sitting there, and I assume that when he calls out those who are sinning or teaching false things, can you imagine like being the person sitting next to them, like, you know, just slightly <laughs> move over just a tad? Like, when you hear these words, consider them in the context not only of a personal dialogue, but also consider the fact that this would have been read publicly. But if that was all that we found here, this relationship between Paul and his spiritual son, or if it's all we saw here that is between Paul and his spiritual son and the church, we would still be missing the point. You see, I actually haven't introduced to you the main character of the book yet. Let's read those first two verses again, shall we? It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now notice that in this short paragraph, Paul mentions himself once, he mentions Timothy once, he mentions God the Father twice, and Jesus Christ three times. This is a book that is all about God. This is a book that is designed to glorify Christ. And although the main theme of 1 Timothy is how to operate a church appropriately, it is written for the purpose of bringing maximum glory to God. And as we see in these first two verses, Paul is not an apostle for his own sake, he is an apostle for Jesus' sake, meaning he belongs to and he is dedicated to Christ. He has been given to Jesus as a servant who will do whatever Jesus wants him to do. And he was given his marching orders by the command, as it says, of God the Father. Now, there's really something interesting that takes place here in these words. Interestingly, this is one of the very few places where the Father's role in salvation is highlighted. 
Here he is called God, our Savior. Normally, it is Jesus that is referenced as the Savior. But what I want you to see in this is that the mission of God the Father and the mission of God the Son and the mission of the Holy Spirit are all united for the purpose of your salvation. God the Father is our Savior, as it says here. And we also see that Paul refers to Jesus Christ as our hope. Have you ever heard that saying, hold on to hope? They get it all backwards. The point that he's saying here is that hope is holding on to us. Not that the world calls hope, not the hope that we see in modern parlance, not wishful thinking, not foolish imagining that if we just want something bad enough, it will probably happen. In the Bible, the word hope means a settled confidence. Jesus is our settled confidence, just as he was for Paul and Timothy. I remember being at the last game ever played at Shea Stadium, and uh, I remember standing, literally, we were pretty much two rows behind. Uh, we didn't have the right tickets for this, but we were able to kind of weasel our way down to the front and stand right behind one of the dugouts, and um, the Mets lost. And they were out of the, the running for the year, and I remember leaving that game and walking out, and there was a family walking next to us, and there was a man whose son was with him and said, we're going to get him next time, Dad. No, they still haven't won since then. But he had hope. He had hope. But that's the wrong kind of hope that we're talking about. We're talking about a settled confidence, something that cannot be shaken. There's nothing in the world that could shake Jesus. He is our settled hope. And here he calls him Christ, our hope. Notice also that Paul has nothing of himself to give to Timothy. His greeting is more of a prayer of blessing than it is a word of encouragement. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul can't give him these things. Paul can't give him grace to carry on in salvation. He could not give him mercy to live another day as a pastor. He could not give him peace with God. He could not give him peace in his mind. He could not give him peace of heart. He could not give him peace in the church. Those are all gifts that can only originate from God himself. So every ounce of grace and mercy and peace and hope that's to be found in this book is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. But Christian, this book is a manual for how a church should look and what it should do. But much more than that, it is a gift from God to help us to know and trust and love God more fully as we encounter Jesus Christ in these pages. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I just want to share with you that He is hope, that He is able to save to the uttermost. If you are feeling hopeless, you are realizing that there is nothing in this world worth living for, you would be right except for Jesus Christ. So if you are here and you don't know him, I want you to know that your sins can be forgiven. Your life can be absolutely transformed. You can stop loving the things of this world and you can start loving the right things, eternal things. But what has to happen is you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has lived a perfect life and died a death for sinners like you and me and who lives today to be your savior. And if you will only turn to him and believe in him, you will be saved. There is hope. And I would ask that if you want to know more about that, please make sure you speak to myself before you go. I, I want you to know Jesus Christ. Let me close out our time together now, though, with three simple applications from what we've read today. First, I encourage you to be discipled by somebody. Sometimes a, disciple, a discipleship relationship is 
a consistent commitment that's agreed upon by two or more people to dedicate themselves to transparency and to accountability and to intentional biblical instruction. But other times, a discipleship relationship just looks like you saying in your own heart, hey, you know what? That guy or that lady seems to be very godly, and I want to learn from them. So I'm going to watch his life or her life closely, and I'm going to follow, and I'm going to ask a lot of questions, and whenever I get a chance, I'm going to sit next to them. I'm going to model my Christian walk after them. I'm going to do whatever I can to be more like Christ because of what I see in them. When my wife first moved here from Oregon, she moved to New York, uh, we were dating at the time. We were already desirous to get married and had discussed marriage. Uh, but she had never been part of a healthy church in her life. And she had never been part of a family that knew the Lord. And she had never been in a position to observe a godly marriage up close and personal on a regular basis. So when she arrived, she moved in with Peter and Claudia Nicotra in Queens. Peter is the pastor of um, Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven. And I told Ashley, listen, I want you to watch everything that Claudia does and I want you to compare it to Scripture, and I want you to imitate everything she does that is God-honoring and Christ-like. But we didn't even tell Claudia that until after we ended up getting married. This was not an official discipleship relationship, but Ashley did learn immensely from that relationship, and without even knowing it, this godly woman made a radical impact on Ashley's life, and therefore on my life, and indirectly even on your life as she serves you here in the church. Whether it's structured or organic, commit yourself to being discipled by somebody in Christ that is more mature than you are in the faith. Secondly, disciple someone else. Not everyone is called to be a pastor or a missionary like Paul and Timothy, but every Christian is told they are to make disciples. And that includes both evangelizing the lost as well as teaching them to obey all that Christ has taught us. The very first part of this process for you is to grow in Christ-likeness. Imitate Jesus. Become more like Christ yourself, and then you'll be able to disciple others. You can't give what you don't have. Be filled with the Word. Be filled with the Lord. Study Him. Know Him. Pray to Him consistently. Grow in such a way that you are able to pour out to others. Parents, disciple your children like Timothy's mother and grandmother discipled him. Latch on to new believers who walk in this door. Whenever somebody is here and they're like, well, I, I don't know the Lord, uh, evangelize them, but when they have just come to know the Lord, disciple them. It is so easy to start discipling somebody who knows nothing about the gospel because everything is a brand new light bulb moment for them saying, do you know that God used Moses in this way, Abraham in this way. He has taught us this in John chapter 1. And all of those things that you feel like you have known forever are refreshed in you as you are able now to teach them to someone else. If somebody comes in who knows less than you do, share with them, encourage them, teach them. There would not have been a pastor uh, named Timothy if it weren't for the dedicated work of a mentoring man named Paul. Timothy never would have reached the position where he was unless God worked through someone to get him there. And in a similar way, I wouldn't be standing here today if it weren't for people who were very careful and methodical and intentional in helping me to grow. Ed Moore and Peter Nicotra are two that I've already mentioned in this sermon. I would not be the pastor or preacher that I am now if it weren't for their help. Now, I'm not saying I'm a perfect pastor, but anything that you find good in my ministry is probably because I just stole it from those guys. 
I would not be anywhere without the encouragements also of my godly friends, people like Matthew Shores and Harry Fujiwara, who were with me in the developmental stages of my Christian walk. And I'm also daily spurred on by each one of you who point me to Christ and give me encouragement from the Word. Now, I just use myself as an illustration because I want you to know that I have no business being here at all except the grace of God. And the only reason I have any of the abilities that I have is because God has given to them, them to me as a gift, but He's also sharpened those things not only in my abilities and skills, but in my love for the Lord, because I've had people around me who have helped me in those ways. Do not underestimate the incredible power that God has given you to help others grow in Christ. Disciple others. Make it a key part of who you are and what you do to constantly be giving what you have been given by Christ. And thirdly, I would say, we can learn from this passage that we need to send our best. I think as I was studying the sermon, the thing I was most impacted by is the fact that when Paul was going to Rome, knowing that he's not going to be released, knowing that he's going to be imprisoned, and knowing that he's going to die, he, we know that he knew that because he told the Ephesian elders, I'm never going to see you again. He knows he's going to die. Yet even then, when he had the greatest need, he sent Timothy a thousand miles away to help this church that he loved, a church as a church, there's going to come a time when we want to plant a church. Lord willing, we will do that, and when that happens, we will say goodbye to people that we worship with regularly here in this room, and we are going to say to those brothers and sisters in Christ, we love you, but we want to send you so that you can continue on in the work of the Lord. Uh, Back in 2015, a group of faithful members of North Shore Baptist Church walked, we went to a church service on a Sunday morning, We sat in our normal seats in the church building, and then as they were playing the third song, we stood up, we walked down the middle aisle, and we walked out the side, shook the hands of every one of the elders there, and we went downstairs and had our own worship service. That's how we planted Redeeming Grace Fellowship. We were sent out by a church that loved us. Now, that wasn't a surprise to people. They knew what was happening. It wasn't a rebellious moment. Um, But we we were going out because we were sent. And I can tell you that the people that were sent from that church were people that were serving faithfully there, and God encouraged them to go. And so I say to us, we need to be ready and desirous and excited about sending our best when that time comes. But it also happened a little bit closer to home. I want us to be thinking carefully about sending missionaries, sending missionaries to the foreign field, raising up people. What a joy it would be if we had various people from this church that would go to all reaches of the globe to carry the gospel to people who have not yet heard. And also, I want to speak to those who are parents to raise up your children when you're shaping their ambition for life. Let's not just talk to them about going to college and getting a paycheck and learning a good profession that will have a a good retirement account at the end of it, but let's really consider leading our kids in such a way that they would prize and prioritize the mission field, that they would prize and prioritize ministry, that they would see that of greater and more immense value than all the wealth that the world can provide. Now, not everyone is called to that. There need to be faithful goers, but also faithful senders, and God does both of those things. But I encourage you, as you are parenting your kids, think in light of sending our best, whether that comes in our own home or in our church or beyond. Paul sent his best, but more importantly, God the Father sent His best. He sent the treasure of heaven. and He sent Jesus Himself to save and redeem His people from their sin. Let's not hold back of sending. Brothers and sisters, I am delighted 
to be in 1 Timothy with you. I am excited to walk forward in examining this book under the microscope each week as we move forward in Christ together. So I hope that you were encouraged this morning. I hope that you're excited with me. And I would ask at this time that we close our time in prayer. Father God, we just thank you for the example set before us of Paul and Timothy that we see here. We thank you, thank you even more for the example set before us of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him and that you sent him to redeem and to save a people for himself. And we thank you that many people in this room have been redeemed by his blood. <clears throat> we do pray, Lord, that even now we would be encouraged and blessed and, and that we would be ready for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.